Well, as you look at the sermon title this morning, do, you, do we welcome who Jesus welcomed? I want you to think of that as a question that you apply personally this morning. I want you to think about your own life and, and ask yourself as an individual, do you welcome who Jesus welcomed? And then corporately to think of us as a body of believers called Wayside Chapel, do we welcome who Jesus welcomed. We're going to be looking in our Bible today in Luke chapter 18. I invite you to turn to Luke 18:35, where we're going to find two uh, different people who are mentioned in this section of Scripture we're looking at today. And one was a person who was an outcast because of his disability. Now, in that day and age, people who were disabled, people who were blind or lame or crippled or some other uh, serious illness were thought to be wicked sinners who were being judged by God. So that's one reason they were an outcast. And the other person we're going to see today is an outcast because of his background. He's a tax collector, and that meant that he was a traitor and a thief, a person who would rob his own people to line his own pockets. And as we look at these two individuals today, both of them will come to Christ. And rather than being rejected, they will be welcomed. And as a result, they will come to faith and be welcomed into the kingdom. As we look at the first account here in Luke 18.35, it says, As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now, I want to stop right there because there are a few things I need to mention about this uh, setting of the situation. When it says he was approaching Jericho, this miracle actually applies, uh, appears in two other accounts in the Bible. One is in Matthew and one is in Mark. And in Matthew and Mark's account, it says that Jesus was leaving Jericho. You'll hear people tell you, well, the Bible contradicts itself, and this is one of those places they'll say, well, see, the Bible uh, doesn't harmonize. And what I want you to understand is uh, the setting is based upon the perspective of the person. In Mark 10.46 and Matthew 20.29, it says that he was, ent- he was uh, leaving. We're here, he's entering. And what's happening right now is at this point in Jesus' journey, he's going to be leaving Jericho. He's going to be going up a road uh, to Jerusalem where he's going to give his life dying on a cross. And that road, if you were to go from Jericho to Jerusalem, is about 15 miles in a straight line. But there was not a straight line. Jericho is 800 feet below sea level. And Jerusalem is 2,500 feet above. And so that means there's a 3,300-foot ascent that happens as you go from Jericho to Jerusalem. And the road has a lot of switchbacks. It goes back and forth up this steep uh, incline. It's called the Ascent of Adamine, which means the road of blood. And it's called that because, as we saw when we looked at the parable of the Good Samaritan, there were people that were robbed and beaten along that road all the time. And so the Ascent of Adamine was called the road of blood because of all the bloodshed of people being robbed there. Jesus was going to Jerusalem to shed his blood. It wouldn't happen on that road. It would happen on a cross on the hillside of Calvary as he gave his life to pay the penalty of death for our sins. But as Jesus is entering Jericho, it's an oasis city. Now, as you look at this picture, you're probably focused on my daughter Hannah being kissed by a camel there at the bottom. But what I want you to look at is behind her, you see these palm trees. And then beyond that is this little hillside with rocks. And I'm going to talk more about that in a moment. But Jericho is called the city of palms. It was an oasis It was right by the Jordan River. Uh, There were multiple springs that were there, so it was a well-watered area. And because of this, it was was a, a wonderful place that people would go to. Jericho is the oldest continually inhabited city in all of the world. 
And so as you go to Jericho, you will find ruins there. You remember that when Israel came into the promised land, the walls of the city fell down as they marched around it. Well, here you see some of the old ruins from the old city of Jericho. And there's both an old and a new city. 2,000 years ago, as Jesus was entering into Jericho, there was already an old Jericho. Thousands of years it had been in existence. And then King Herod, who was in power at the time, was a master builder. And he was constantly building. So you had an old and a new Jericho. And so it depends on the perspective of the writer. One gospel writer could be saying, I'm watching him leave Jericho, the older city, while another one would say he's entering in. Just think of where we are here and at the 410 campus. Uh, we're actually in Castle Hills, Texas here. If you didn't know that, we're not in San Antonio. We're in Castle Hills. It was a small city that was outside of San Antonio at one point. Loop 410, right outside our front door here, uh, was the outward boundary of the city. But in time, San Antonio uh, grew around Castle Hills. And so you could easily drive through Castle Hills and say, I'm leaving San Antonio and entering it. And so this is what's happening here. Now, one other place of harmony that you need to look at is in Matthew's account. He says that there are two blind men, while Mark and Luke say, only tell us about one. Now, that doesn't mean that there wasn't two. It just means that they focus on one in particular. Matthew gives us more detail about him. He tells us his name is Bartimaeus. And so what we have here is not a contradiction in scriptures. It's just a different way of reporting what is happening. So let's pick up the story of Blind Bart here in Luke 18.35. It says, As Jesus was approaching Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the road begging. Now hearing a crowd going by, he began to inquire what was there. And they told him that Jesus of Nazareth was passing by. So Bartimaeus is blind. He's used to the the sounds of the city, things that are happening, but something unusual is happening. There's this huge parade of people, there's the buzz of the crowd, there's stuff happening. And so Bartimaeus says to the people around him, what's going on? And he's told Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. Now, Bartimaeus has heard about Jesus. Everybody in that day had. Jesus has been traveling around doing ministry and miracles for almost three years He's on the last leg of his journey going into Jerusalem to die. And so Bartimaeus, hearing and knowing who Jesus is, he recognizes him not just as his great teacher or prophet, but as the actual Messiah, the promised one. And we see that by the title he uses there in verse 38. It says, and he called out saying, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. Now those who led the way were sternly telling him to be quiet. But he kept crying out all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. Now, parents, I'm sorry to say these words here, but as this guy is crying out, this isn't a polite silencio. Shh, be quiet. This is caete. Shut up. You're embarrassing us. What are you doing? It's Jesus. Remember, people who were like Bartimaeus, we're seen as wicked sinners. They're like, we got to hide, we got to hide our outcasts. We got to hide people like you from Jesus. And, and rather than calming down or claiming up, he cries out even louder. Son of David, have mercy on me. Now verse 40 says, and Jesus stopped and he commanded that he be brought to him. So suddenly those who had been saying, shut up, are saying, cheer up. He wants to see you. Come on. Uh, you know, So they bring Bartimaeus to him. And it says, and when he came near, Jesus questioned him. 
What do you want me to do for you? And he said, Lord, I want to regain my sight. This is a guy who had seen at some point in his life, he says, I want to regain it. He's lost his, his sight. Now, we've already seen he calls Jesus the Messiah. And, and Bartimaeus is a Jewish person. He's grown up knowing the scriptures. And, and like any of us, as you read the Bible, when, when there are times of trial in your life, you find those passages that speak to your situation. And so he would have known about the Messiah and the things that were said that the Messiah would do. And so he, he thinks of a passage like Isaiah 35, verses 5 through 6, which says, Then the eyes of the blind will be opened, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, and the lame will leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute will shout for joy. He can't see Jesus with physical eyes, but he has eyes of faith. And he says, Lord, I know you can heal me. And, and he says, I want to see again. And so Jesus said to him, receive your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he regained his sight and he began following him, glorifying God. And when the people saw it, they gave praise to God. You know, in an instant, this man goes from darkness to light. He he goes from begging to following Jesus, from crying out in desperation to crying out with praise. What a contrast to what we saw last week in Luke 18, 23. Do you remember there, there was the passage that talked about the rich young ruler who came to Christ, but rather than following Jesus, it says he went away sad. Here this man turns to Christ and he begins to follow him and there's great joy in his life. He's smiling, he's happy, the people are as well. They're saying, wow, another miracle right in our midst. They're there with him. But we're about to see the mood of the, tra- the, the crowd changes as we enter chapter 19. Because in Luke 19, 1 through 4, it tells us, he entered Jericho and he was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was the chief chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and he climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. I want you to stop again in the story here. As you read the Bible, enter into the, the story and put yourself what's happening there. As you, as you set the table here, Zacchaeus is like the blind man. He's unable to see Jesus, but it's not because his eyes were not working. It's because the crowd was working against him. We're told he's, he's a short little guy. As, as a tax collector, he's hated by everyone. And so the crowd is not letting him in. He's like, I want to see Jesus. And they're like pushing him around. In fact, they're doing more than probably pushing him. They're they're probably elbowing him, kicking him, doing things. You know, there's the anonymity of the crowd. And they're like, here's our chance to get some shots in on this guy. Because they don't like Zacchaeus. Nobody does. Remember, tax collectors were were the people who worked for Rome. They they took the, the taxes and then they took their cut from it. So they stole from their own people. And... They, they, were, they were people that, that nobody liked. Their family would have disowned them. The religious leaders abhorred them. We saw in the previous parable how when the tax collector and the Pharisee were praying in the temple, he said, I thank you, God, that I'm not like this guy. And as a tax collector, Jericho was a target-rich environment. I already told you it was an oasis city. It was the place that was well-watered. You were in desert areas, and as you came in, this would be a place that all the caravans would stop. 
they would, they would fuel up and they would, they would you know, refill their water. They, would, they were about to make this 3,300-foot ascent going into Jerusalem. So this was a place that everybody paused. It was the gateway to the whole region. The Jordan River is there, so there was a key crossing. Uh, the, the road going to Jerusalem was where the capital was, so there was a lot of commerce that passed through Jericho. And as tax collectors, you could stop every caravan, every person in the street. You were collecting not only the taxes that Rome said, but whatever you could make up to, to make money. And so whenever anybody saw Zacchaeus, they knew it was going to be a very expensive conversation. If this guy walked up to you, you knew you were going to leave with a lighter wallet or purse. And when, when he comes, no one wants him around. So he's getting pushed around. And as he pokes around the edges of the crowd, he finally realizes after getting black and blue with bruises that he's got to try something different. And so he runs ahead. He gets ahead of the crowd. He finds a sycamore tree. Now, right about now, some of you are singing that old Sunday school song in your head, aren't you? Zacchaeus was a wee little man and a wee little man was he. He climbed up in a sycamore tree for the Lord he wanted to see. As you think about that, I want you again to picture it. Well, here's, here's something that may help you. This is actually a sycamore fig tree there in Israel. You see Walt McCord from our church down below, and that's my son, Zachary, up in the tree. So it's not Zacchaeus, it's Zachary up in a sycamore tree. And, and he's 13 years old. He's wearing shorts and sneakers there, and so he can, he can scooch up a, a tree pretty quickly. But Zacchaeus, he's in that neon green shirt there, kind of in the middle, So Zacchaeus is an older man, and he's not in shorts and sneakers. He's in sandals and a long toga. Any ladies here ever tried to climb a tree wearing a full-length dress? That's Zacchaeus. He's, He's got to get up into this tree. And think about how hard that was for this older man wearing a full-length toga to climb up in a tree, not only physically, but for himself. It's embarrassing. He's humiliated. He's the richest man in town, and, and, and nobody likes him. So as he's getting up the tree, I'm sure people are throwing rocks at him. People are poking at him with sticks up in the tree. People are laughing at him and mocking him. His, his fine robes have been torn on the, the limbs of the branches. It's been stained by the leaves. He's, he's up there in the tree, but he's willing to suffer humiliation just to get a glimpse of Jesus. This Jesus who's been a topic of conversation Remember, as he stops caravans and collects taxes, one of the ways news traveled in that day is you would, you would ask travelers, is there anything going on in other regions of the country? And everybody's talking about Jesus. Is he the Messiah? He's doing these miracles. His teaching is with authority. And Zacchaeus has been hearing story after story of him. As he gathers uh, with his cronies for parties in their homes, they're all talking about Jesus. They're all hated, just like Zacchaeus. They all want to be liked. And what have they been hearing about this guy called Jesus? Well, he accepts the outcasts, the lepers, the poor, the lame, the crippled, even tax collectors. Do you remember that one of Jesus' disciples was named Matthew or Levi? Remember his profession? He was a tax collector. He probably worked for Zacchaeus at some point as the chief guy. And they all know about Matthew being welcomed in by Jesus. They've heard the stories of of what he was doing, how he reaches out to the untouchables. 
You remember back in Luke 8:43, we saw the woman who had the issuance of blood, and she said, as she pushed through the crowd, "If I can just touch the hem of Jesus' garment, then I'll, I'll be healed." And she was. And Jesus didn't just heal her. He stopped and said, who touched me? And that woman was petrified as she looked up and there was the Lord looking at her. And, and this is Zacchaeus. He's up in a tree, just hoping, if I could just see Jesus. Is there anyone here this morning like Zacchaeus? Is there anybody here desperate to see the Lord? Did you come in here this morning just thinking, if only Jesus were to touch my life, things would be different? You could be like Zacchaeus. You're rich, you're powerful, you have everything the world offers, but you know something is missing. You have a hole, you feel empty. Others of you here are like the woman with the issuance of blood. You're saying, I'm on the other end. My whole world has fallen apart, I'm wiped out. If I could just get a touch from Jesus, maybe things would be different. All of us here know people like Zacchaeus, don't we? That person that nobody likes, that outsider at school, the person who's pushed around or bullied or nobody wants to let sit at the lunch table with them. It may be somebody at work where everybody's saying, you know, they're, they're just different. And you don't want to be around them. Are we, are we like the crowd? Are we those who are boxing out those outcasts? Are we like Jesus? Reaching out and welcoming people like that. Verse 5 says, When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and he said to him, Zacchaeus. Now, don't go any farther. I want you to stop and freeze the story right there and think about that. Zacchaeus is up in that tree. He's looking down. He just wanted to get a glimpse of Jesus, and he sees him. And Jesus sees Zacchaeus. He doesn't just stop and look up and say, oh, look at that funny little man up in the tree, but he calls him by name. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus freezes. How does he know my name? What does he know about me? He knows everything about Zacchaeus. Friends, he knows everything about every one of us. He knows your name just like he knows my name. And the Bible says he knows every single detail about us. The Bible says he even knows the number of hairs on our head. He knows everything about us, what we've done this week, last month, our whole life. And because of that, we, we might have the same fear that Zacchaeus has at that moment. As, as Jesus locks eyes with him and says, Zacchaeus, he goes, oh, no. What's he going to say to me? And think about the crowd. The crowd, is, as they've been following along, and Jesus is there at the front, and he looks up and he stops, and he says, Zacchaeus. Everybody looks up and goes, oh, Zacchaeus, this is going to be good. Right? He's not just a tax collector. He's the chief tax collector. He's, he's at the top of the food chain not only in terms of what he collects in wealth, but also in wickedness. This is the guy that sets the taxes for everybody. This is the guy that everybody hates. So they're thinking, oh, let him have it, Lord. As, as he says Zacchaeus, they think he's going to start listing off all the sins of Zacchaeus. They're saying, you know, don't hold back, Jesus. Tell him how wicked he is. Indict him. Rebuke him. 
They're thinking maybe even throw a lightning bolt, right? Knock them out of the tree. Let's see them fall to the ground. They're, they're just waiting for this. But as the words come out of Jesus' mouth that are next, it's, it's, it's not words that anybody expected. Because he says to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down. For today I must stay at your home. And the crowd, as they hear this, they say, what? No, 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 don't, don't go to his house. Hit him with a lightning bolt. Bring the judgment. We love God's grace, don't we? When it applies to us. But if we were to be really, really honest this morning, aren't there people that we just kind of go, oh, really, God, do you have to show grace to that person? I mean, there's people who have hurt us, who have hurt a loved one, the ones who take advantage of the vulnerable in our society. We see people like that and we say, no, God, don't give them grace. Give them judgment. We, we like it when it applies to us, but when it comes to somebody like Z- Zacchaeus, we don't want him around. Now, it says here that Jesus invited himself to Zacchaeus' house. This is the only time in the entire Bible where Jesus invites himself to somebody's house. And you may think, well, okay, that's fine. If God's going to show grace to somebody, let him do it somewhere else. Just not in my house, right? Don't bring him around here. Don't, don't let him come in here to God's house at Wayside Chapel. Now, listen, I know theologically this building is not the church. The body of believers are called the church. Wherever we are, that's where the church is. But what if somebody like Zacchaeus were to walk through the doors of Wayside Chapel this morning and they were to come in here and they were to want to sit next to you? What would you be thinking? Well, there's plenty of seats on the front row. Just, just you know, why don't you, you go up there, right? What if they wanted to come to your life group that meets in your house? Would they be welcome? Would we welcome somebody like Zacchaeus. A couple of years ago, there were two ladies who came up to talk to me after the service. You probably see there's usually a bunch of people who come up and they need prayer or want to ask questions or talk. And usually it's the people that linger in the far corners and come up after the crowd has dissipated that have have the, the biggest need. Or the hardest questions. And in this one Sunday, these, these two ladies were off at a distance. And when the crowd dissipated, they came up to the front and they said, uh, they said, uh, Pastor, is this a welcoming church? And I said to them, I said, I think Wayside is, is a welcoming church. You'll find friendly people here, places to connect. There are lots of great Bible studies where you can grow deeper in God's word. Now, I knew what they meant by the word welcoming. Right? Welcoming is a, is a key word in our, in our society that says, do you embrace the LGBT movement? Do you affirm our lifestyle? Do you accept uh, gay and lesbians? And so that's what they were asking. And, and I thought they did, but I wanted to set the table first right out of the chute. And then I said, but what I think you're asking me is, does Wayside embrace the LGBT movement? Is that correct? And both of these ladies shook their head yes. And I said, well, you're standing here in a church. You came to church this morning. And I said, I think you came into church this morning because you want to know what God says in the Bible, what God thinks about us as people, what God wants our lives to look like as people. And so I said, what the Bible says about the LGBT movement is he doesn't bless or embrace that lifestyle. Now, I I didn't end there. I said, the same Bible says something to me as a heterosexual male. 
It says to me that as a man, I'm not to lust after a woman who's not my wife. It says as a heterosexual man or a, or a heterosexual woman, you are not to sleep with somebody who's not in a, in a marriage relationship as one man and one woman. I said, so God's word has a lot to say about sexual sin, not just LGBT sin, but to all of us. And I said, this is what I will promise you if you come to Wayside. You will never hear me as a pastor cherry pick passages out of the Bible to bash the gay and lesbian lifestyle. I said, but you will never not hear me as a pastor uh, compromise. You will never hear me compromise on what God's word says. And so whenever I talk about sexual sin, I will talk about it in relation to me as a heterosexual person and you as somebody who considers yourself uh, gay. And when I finished talking to them, they looked at each other and they whispered a few things and then they turned to me and they said, we can accept that. And they've continued to come to Wayside. I see them here on a regular basis. They even bring friends to Wayside, and they're not the only family that is here like that. When I ask, are we a welcoming church, it doesn't mean, brothers and sisters, that you compromise God's word. That's not what being a welcoming church is. It's teaching the truth of God's word. The most loving thing any of us can ever do is to share what God's word says and to call people to his standards. Now, in terms of being welcoming, it can also mean that we have to give up some of our comforts, some of our preferences. You know, last Sunday, uh, we voted as a congregation as to whether or not we're going to remove the pews here in the 410 sanctuary. And that, that passed by the congregation. And so we will be beginning a renovation of our worship center around January. And what that means is these seats are going to be taken out. Other seats are going to come in. There's a a number of other improvements. And I know that in doing that, it's going to mean a lot of disruption. Uh, It's going to mean there are going to be some Sundays we're sitting in here in temporary chairs. It means that there are people who are unhappy about the loss of the pews because to them a church is a place where there are pews. It means giving up some things. But the reason we're doing it is in order to be more welcoming to others. Because at this 11 o'clock service, there are Sundays that you hear us ask you, can you move in? We need more room. There are times we've had people actually walk out because they could not find a seat. And so we're undergoing this renovation project in order to create more space for more people to hear the good news of the gospel. And there are costs that come with it, not only in the inconvenience, but also a financial cost. Um, you know, we talked last week about the, the price tag of over $800,000 in order to do all of the renovation. And we have some money that has already been escrowed, and there is other money that's already been given. To date, $67,000 has already been given uh, toward the project. And now that it's approved, many of you said you were waiting to see if it would be approved, and it has. So if you'd like to give a gift uh, to the Sanctuary Seating Project, just write that on your check, or when you go online, you can designate Sanctuary Seating Project. But we're doing that in order to be a more welcoming church. We're doing other things here to be more welcoming. Uh, We have a large uh, disabled population here at Wayside, whether it's because of age as seniors or God is bringing a number of special needs families to our church. And because of that, even though we have enough handicapped parking by code, we don't have enough handicapped spaces for the number of people who are coming. And so in two weeks, we're going to be uh, painting over some of the spaces in front of Fellowship Hall and we're going to be adding additional handicapped spaces. It's not as easy as just putting a sign up. Uh, the, the disability code says there's a certain slope and width to spaces. 
And so what that means is those of you who say, well, I'm able-bodied, that's not a big deal. Well, it means you're going to lose some of your in-close parking. It means that you're going to be giving up some of your convenience in order to serve others who have a greater need. So we'll be putting additional parking in front of Fellowship Hall and on the Roletto side of Fellowship Hall, this handicapped space uh, to accommodate the needs of people. You probably noticed we added another electronic handicap entrance onto the children's building. If you go out these doors and through the courtyard, we already have one over here on this entrance and one over here, but a number of our seniors, as they leave here and try to go to Fellowship Hall, or families that have children with disabilities, we've added a, another electronic uh, handicap access door to the, to the children's building. Again, those are steps we're taking to be more welcoming. Uh, I mentioned a number of special needs families. We're birthing a new ministry here at Wayside called in the Embracing Abilities Committee. And this was launched, uh, there's been a, a group of individuals who have been praying and working through this who have uh, backgrounds in the healthcare field or working with uh, special needs families that have come together to say, how can we better serve families here at our church? And the Embracing Abilities Committee is, is the result of that. And it's not just for those who, are, who have physical disabilities, it also includes cognitive and developmental disabilities like autism, Down syndrome, traumatic brain injuries. We have individuals here in our church who are wounded warriors who have suffered traumatic brain injury. And families that are dealing with these various needs give so much all throughout the week. And then when they come to church on Sunday, uh, they want, like you, to unplug, sit back, and worship. But in many cases, they're having to shepherd and take care of their loved ones. And so the Embracing Abilities Committee is designed to have individuals who will be a buddy to these special uh, folks in our church who have, have a higher need, uh, a higher care need. And you'll be with them during the, the service. You'll be with them over in the children's building so that those individuals can be a part, uh, a vibrant part of our body. And we can serve the families that are taking care of them all throughout the week. So there will be an informational meeting on February 24th that will tell you more about this ministry, about the training that we're going to be giving, about the background and the things that you'll need to know to be a part of it. These are just some of the ways we're working to make Wayside a more welcoming place. And as I said earlier, I want you to look at your own life personally and ask yourself, what are you doing? What are you doing in your own world, your own sphere of influence, in order to welcome others? Now, as we look to welcome people... As I said, we never compromise the truth. What we do is we call them to be all that Christ wants them to be. As Jesus stops and says, Zacchaeus, come down. Hurry, I must go to your house today. Jesus is going to call him to a higher standard, to a new way of life. We're not told what the conversation that happens at the meal, but I want you to look at Luke 19, uh, chapter 19, verses 6 through 10. It says, and he hurried and he came down and he received Jesus gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble saying, he is gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. 
When we read in verse 6 that Zacchaeus received him gladly, the Greek word that is used there is chiron. It has the same root as kairos, which means grace. And this word is used nine times in Luke's gospel. Every single time, it is, it is accompanying the joy that comes when somebody has come to faith in the Messiah. It literally means rejoicing. And as you look at verse 8, you see that Zacchaeus has come to the Lord. He calls him Lord two different times. In Romans 10, 9, we're told, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. Now, Jesus has not yet made it to Jerusalem where he's going to die on the cross and then rise from the dead three days later. But Zacchaeus knows who he is just as Bartimaeus did. He said, son of David. And here Zacchaeus says, Lord. He calls him Savior. And Jesus says in verse 8, behold, he says in, in verse 9, today salvation has come to this house. Now, as Zacchaeus responds in faith, he says in verse 8, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. Last week in Luke eighteen eighteen through 25, we saw how the rich man came to the Lord and said, What must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus told him, Well, sell your possessions and then come and follow me. And what I don't want you to make the mistake of thinking is, is that Zacchaeus is saved because he, he liquidates his wealth. And, and that's, what, that's what got him to God, that he somehow bought a ticket home to heaven. Jesus wasn't telling the rich man, you can, you can earn your way to heaven by giving up everything. What he was saying is, your love for your possessions in this world is greater than your love for me. You need to leave that and follow me. And Zacchaeus here is willing to do that. Now, as he, as he does this, he's not saved because he promised to do good works. He was saved because he already responded in faith to Christ. And as he receives Jesus as the Messiah, he gives evidence, evidence of his faith by promising to make restitution. And in terms of the restitution he's made, if you read the Mosaic Law, it, it had guidelines as to what you were to do if you had stolen from somebody. If you read Leviticus 5.16, Leviticus 6.5 and Numbers 5.7, it says if you stole from someone, you were to restore what you took plus 20%. Restore what you took plus a fifth of the value of what you took. In Exodus 22.4, we're told if you're, if you're literally caught red-handed with the goods, you had to repay double, double what you took. And it says if you took something that could not be restored, like an animal you slaughtered and had eaten and you couldn't obviously give the animal back, you were to restore it fourfold. As we look at Zacchaeus here, what he's been stealing from people is money. He's a tax collector. He can give back the money. At best, if he wanted to make biblical restitution, he would give 20%. But what he said is, I'm going to give 400 times what I've taken. He takes God's highest standard and he says, I know that I've fallen short of your standard. The Bible says in Romans 3.23, for all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. That's his standard of perfection. And so Zacchaeus says, if this is the highest bar that I've fallen short of, I want to give that. As one who's received grace as a sinner, I want to give grace. I want to give the highest amount back. I want you to imagine what that looked like. Think about the days that followed. Jesus has left. He's gone on to Jerusalem. Zacchaeus is still there. 
He comes walking into your shop. You're a store owner. And that next morning, Zacchaeus walks in and you go, here it comes. Every time Zacchaeus comes in your shop, your register's empty and his pockets are full when he leaves. And so you're thinking, what is this going to cost me? He comes in, he looks over the inventory on the shelf, he smiles at you, he lays an envelope on the table. Your hands are shaking as you pick up the envelope because usually in it is a bill telling you what you're going to owe and you've got to fill that, that, that thing with money and hand it back to him. But as you open the envelope, instead of a bill, there's a wad of bills. There's money in there. There's a lot of money in there. And you you look up at Zacchaeus and you go, what is this? And Zacchaeus smiles at you and he says, you know, I met a man this week. His name was Jesus. We had a meal together and he talked to me about my life and how my life isn't very pleasing to God. He told me that he loves me just like I am, but he loves me too much to leave me like I am. And he said, Zacchaeus, now that you've found me as the Messiah, now that you've placed your faith in me, I want your life to reflect me. And he says, so I'm here today to tell you I'm sorry. I'm sorry that I stole from you. I'm sorry for what I took. I want to give you back what I've taken, and I want to give you back this bonus. Four times of everything I've ever taken from you. And he turns around and he walks out of your shop. And your legs buckle as you sit down looking at this wad of cash. And you're thinking, is this a joke? Where's Candid Camera? I mean, are they going to be right back in here to take it away? But then you hear that he he did the same thing to your neighbor. And he did the same thing with another person down the street. And all throughout town, this conversation is happening over and over. I met Jesus and he changed my life. And I want you to see that I really am different because I have the Lord living inside me. Brothers and sisters, what if that were to happen with us? What if everyone who calls himself a Christian, instead of people in society saying, well, Christians are just hypocrites. They say one thing with their lips, but their lives look different. What if our lives really reflected the Lord? What if, what if people didn't worry about when we did business with them, if we were going to cheat them? What if they didn't worry about getting taken advantage of? What if every time we, we interacted with somebody, it was a blessing? What would happen in terms of people being open to hearing the good news of the gospel. Now, I want you to understand, as I said earlier, Zacchaeus isn't saved because he gave a lot of money away. If you're sitting here this morning saying, okay, I'm going to write a check and cover all the seats for the sanctuary and that'll get me to heaven, don't write that check. Because you you can't buy your way to heaven. Now, if you want to give it, great, but don't think it's going to get you to heaven. And and don't hear me saying that you can do enough good things in order to earn your way to God because you can't. As you read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, it tells us, for by grace, by grace you've been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works so that no one should boast. The Bible is black and white clear. We are saved by faith alone through grace alone, not by anything we do. But as you read Ephesians 2, 8, 9, Read the very next verse, because Ephesians 2.10 tells us, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. It says we are not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works. There should be a change in our life. When we respond to grace, 
then there, there needs to be a change where we're no longer living for our passions, our possessions. But instead, we live for the purpose that God has created us. You know, I mentioned earlier this disabilities committee that, that has been formed. And, and the theme verse that they, they are using for that came out of something that we covered earlier in our series in Luke. In Luke fourteen twenty one through 23, it says, Go out quickly into the streets and alleys, into the town, and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, that my house may be filled. And people here at Wayside heard that and said, I want that to be what I'm known for. I want that to be what our church is known for. And how can we put that faith in action? As you think about your life today, if God has gotten a hold of your life, if he has changed you, then what are you doing to demonstrate that? Good works lead to goodwill, which leads to the good news of the gospel. Good works lead to goodwill, which leads to the good news of the gospel. You heard Pastor Charles Mugishu say that a few weeks ago. Remember our brother from Rwanda that was here? One of our mission partners. And he talked about the, the gospel and the two hands as they come together. And again, I'm so proud of this church and the way that, that we responded to that call. 166 kids were sponsored through Wayside Chapel because people sitting here heard that and said, yes. I want there to be good works that lead to goodwill, to the good news that will impact lives of those kids on the other side of the world that will change that country, that will change the world. The word gospel literally means the good news. It's the good news of God's grace as Jesus came to save us by dying on the cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And as we come to the communion table now, we're reminded of what that means. We're reminded of what Jesus did, how much God loved us as he came to die for us. And if you're here this morning and you've never accepted God's gift of new life, I want you to look at Luke 19.5 again. Because in Luke 19.5, Jesus said, hurry, hurry and come down for today I must stay at your house. Don't miss the invitation that's there, the urgency of it. He says, hurry today. Today, I want a relationship with you. Today, I want you to, to know me as Lord and Savior. Today, I want us to be together and have fellowship. God knows who we are as sinners. As he looked up at Zacchaeus, as he said to Zacchaeus, come down. He knew exactly who Zacchaeus was. He knew that he was the chief tax collector. He knew that he was the, what was considered the worst sinner in the whole town. But he didn't reject him. Instead, he received him. And if you're sitting here this morning and you say, God would never welcome me because, you know, I've made such a mess of my life. I want you to read Romans 5.8. Because in Romans 5.8, it says, God demonstrated his own love toward us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And that's what we're remembering now as we come to the communion table. How Jesus died for us. How as he walked through Jericho, he knew he was going up that 3,300-foot ascent to get to Jerusalem where he would be going to give his life, dying on a cross to pay the penalty of death for our sins. And in a moment, we're going to hold two pieces, two elements. One is a piece of bread and one is a cup of juice. And what they represent are the body and blood of Jesus, that he gave his life in our place. 
And if you're here this morning and you've never accepted Jesus as your Savior and you realize today that you need him, you need him to be the one who paid the penalty of death for you and you're ready to turn from your sins and him to be your Savior, then I invite you to take the bread and the cup and hold them and say to him, Jesus, I'm accepting you today. I know you died for me and I thank you for this gift of new and eternal life. And for the rest of us who have received him in the past, as we come to this table, he tells us to come with clean hands and hearts to confess our sins. We all continue to fall short of his standard. We all make mistakes. We never lose our salvation, but that sin can block our fellowship. And so he says, confess your sins and come to this table with clean hands and hearts. Today we celebrate his great love for us through the elements of communion. So as they're, they're past, take and receive them and hold them. And we'll celebrate communion together in a moment. In your hand, you're holding a piece of bread. The Bible tells us that Jesus is called the bread of life. He was born in Bethlehem, which literally means the house of bread. We're entering the Advent, the Christmas season, where people are seeing mangers with the little baby Jesus. People are singing songs about Christ, not sometimes knowing really what they're even saying. As you see those reminders of Jesus as a baby at Bethlehem, remember that he came to be the Christ of Calvary. He took on flesh and blood so that he could go to the cross where he would take on the penalty of our sin and give his life as a sacrifice for our sins. So as you hold this bread and as you take it this morning, remember the greatest Christmas gift any of us will ever receive. Remember the greatest gift that God gave to us out of his son, Jesus Christ. The bread of life, Jesus Christ, eated in remembrance of him. And here we hold a cup. It's just a cup of grape juice. But what it represents is the blood of the Messiah the one who would go to the cross and die to wash away our sins. As Jesus was there in Jericho, he knew where he was going. He knew he was on the last leg, straight up that mountainside. As he walked the road of blood, he thought about shedding his blood for us. As he knelt in the Garden of Gethsemane, you'll remember he was sweating drops of blood. He prayed, Lord, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me. He knew what the cross meant, a horrific death for him. But he knew only through the shedding of his blood could our sins be washed away. And he willingly did that for us. The blood of Jesus, drink it in remembrance of him. You join me, please, as we go to the Lord in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for grace. Grace, a word that can be God's riches at Christ's expense. We know, Jesus, that you knew the cost. And yet you willingly went to the cross, even in the midst of the agony, even as you knew where you were going, you were not too busy to stop and reach out to individuals to bring hope and healing, not just physically, but internally. And so, Father, as those who are here who have received that grace, may we first be thankful And then, Lord God, would we be faithful to spread the news of the good news of the gospel, especially during this Christmas time when so many are thinking about what does it mean? 
would we be willing to be witnesses and open our mouth and share the good news of the gospel. I thank you, God, for your great love for us, that while we were yet sinners, you were willing to die for us. May we spread the good news of salvation that has come through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his holy and blessed name. Amen.